Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. The story of the Eastern Romans might seem quite distant from African history, but the most popular Byzantine story involves an emperor from Africa. Heraclius's epic battle with the Persians is one of the defining episodes in world history. If you'd like to know more about the part Africa played in the Roman story, then check out the History of Byzantium podcast. For now though, back to Andy. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. So, sorry if I sound a little bit different this episode. Sometime in the last two weeks, the microphone I was using to record this series started to experience some serious malfunctions. So, I ordered a new microphone, and I'm using one that I had lying around until that new microphone arrives in the mail. Hope it's not too distracting, and that the new, higher quality microphone that is on its way will make up for this brief inconvenience. Anyways, last episode we covered the devastating Ashanti Civil War, as the faction that supported a decentralized government run by powerful regional governors emerged victorious over the faction that favored a centralized government run by Kumasi. The new king, Kusi Obodom, instituted a set of legal reforms that reduced the punishment for various crimes and made feuds among Ashanti tribal families rare. However, while the Ashanti Empire appeared to be returning to a state of peace and stability, this couldn't be further from the truth. A new enemy, more threatening than any that the Ashanti had faced prior, was emerging to the east, and war between the two powers would soon follow. Season 3, Episode 8, The Daume War. So, before we move forward, let's actually rewind a bit, back to the 1720s. To get our minds set back in that time, remember Opokuware was the Ashanti Hene, the Ashanti realm was expanding rapidly, and there was definitely no chance of a major civil war breaking out in the future, right? You might remember that one of Opokuware's diplomatic policies was one of reconciliation with the Akwamu, the major kingdom that sat to the Ashanti's east. To briefly resummarize Akwamu-Ashanti relations, the Akwamu, remember, had been one of the first allies of the Ashanti, harboring the fugitive Ashanti king, Osetutu, from his Denshira enemies, and providing military advisors who would play a crucial role in helping Osetutu win his war for independence. Around the end of Osetutu's rule, though, the relationship between the two kingdoms soured. Rapid Ashanti expansion, especially into the neighboring Achiam region, spooked the Akwamu, and they allegedly played a role in sabotaging the Ashanti's war efforts against the Achiam, and even possibly played a role in assassinating Osetutu himself. This relationship soured further when the Akwamu used Osetutu's death and the ensuing political fallout to take advantage of Ashanti weakness invading eastern Ashanti territory to support one side in the succession crisis that followed the first Ashantehane's death. However, after Opokuware took the golden stool as the new Ashantehane, he embarked actually on renewing his old alliance and a status of peace with the Akwamu. In an ironic twist, the Akwamu themselves experienced a succession dispute almost immediately after the Ashanti dispute resolved. Ironically enough, Opokuware would support one of the sides in this Akwamu succession dispute, and when the Ashanti-backed side won out, the alliance between the two states was reborn. So, now that we've recapped, what exactly happened to the Akumu after that succession dispute? Did the Akumu emerge from their dispute relatively okay, and resume their status as the most powerful state east of the Volta? Well, not exactly. In fact, things were about to get even worse for the Akumu. For starters, throughout this time period, a new people would migrate into Akumu territory. Coming from the northeast, a group of people called the Iwe entered into Akwamu territory as refugees, fleeing the conquest of their old homeland by an empire called Oil, an empire which we'll briefly touch on again a bit later. 
Now, this was a migration, not an invasion, so it's not like the Iwe were clashing with Aquamu armies or anything to try to take land. But regardless, large influxes of people, even ones who don't necessarily have the intention of making war, will inevitably lead to some degree of tension. The Iwe, as newly arrived people, needed somewhere to live, so they decided to settle in some areas in the southeast of the Aquamu territory, a problem considering that this land was occupied by the Ga people. This was a recipe for land disputes, and tensions began to run high among the Ga, Akan, and Iwe in southern Aquamu. Combined with this massive migration causing instability, the aftermath of the aforementioned succession dispute had also resulted in some lingering instability in the Aquamu state, especially in regards to the Aquamu's subject kings. The Aquamu's vassal states of the Ga in the south and some of the Guang cities in the north took the succession dispute as an opportunity to break away from their Aquamu overlord, so this wasn't necessarily a huge deal. Now that their dispute had been resolved, the Aquamu could get things back to normal. In 1727, the Aquamu Hene marched his forces south to Accra, the largest Ga city, in order to negotiate the resumption of tribute payments and, essentially, bring the Ga back under the Aquamu fold. However, almost immediately, these negotiations faced troubles, as the people of Accra did not necessarily want to return to their status as tributaries to the Aquamu. In 1729, as negotiations slowly continued, an important Aquamu nobleman was assassinated by corpus unknown. A member of the nobleman's family pointed the finger at a personal rival and imprisoned him. This soon sparked a major feud between the imprisoned man's family, who attested his innocence, and the family of the murdered nobleman. Eventually, this feud would blossom into a full-fledged rebellion within the Akumu territory, a rebellion which would provoke more rebellion throughout other parts of the kingdom. The Ga, tired of Akumu domination and sensing weakness with this ongoing revolt, decided that simply trying to maintain a distance between themselves and their old ruler wasn't enough. The king of Accra declared a revolt, and, with Dutch aid, went to war with the Aquamu. The Guang too rose in revolt, aligning themselves with the largest Guang power in the region, the kingdom of Gonja, who happily aided the rebels. With Aquamu weakness now apparent, the nearby kingdom of Achiem sensed an opportunity to expand at the expense of an ally of their Ashanti rival. The Iwe too rose up, establishing their own independent kingdom in the southeast of Aquamu. And to make matters worse, as the Aquamu scrambled to levy an army to fight this ever-growing list of adversaries, news came from one of the last loyal Aquamu vassals, the eastern city of Waida. Waida, located in the modern-day Republic of Benin, represented the furthest eastward frontier of Aquamu influence acting as a vanguard of the interior parts of the empire from would-be enemies from the east. However, from 1727 till 1729, an army from the east had besieged and eventually captured Waida. With Waida captured, the Akumu interior was now completely exposed, and this enemy army marched rapidly towards the core Akumu territories. This army represented the forces of a rising empire in the lands east of the Volta River, whose appearance heralded the end of the Akumu. Enter Daume. So, what is Daume anyways? Well, I can't say enough here, as there's just simply too much to talk about. While it might seem like I'm kind of turning Daume into a footnote, I promise that's not the case. This kingdom is definitely future podcast season material. But, to make a very long and interesting story short, the Empire of Daume was definitely not Akan. The dominant ethnic group in the empire are called the Fawn, and religiously, culturally, governmentally, all that, the Fawn are like a whole different world from the Akan. 
Despite their differences, though, the Fon have a somewhat similar origin story to the Akan. Not much has been written on the origins of the Fon, but the general scholarly consensus seems to align with the Fon oral history. According to this oral history, the Fon were originally a subgroup of the Aja, a culture that migrated into the area around modern Togo around the 14th century AD. But one group of the Aja migrated further east, establishing their own settlements and building their own distinct culture. These eastward Aja settlers were the ancestors of the Fon, and after some time, they gradually morphed into their own distinct culture. In the 17th century, the largest Fon settlement of Abome gradually grew in size and power, slowly enveloping other nearby Fon settlements. However, in the waning years of the 17th century, contemporaneously to when Osetutu was making his way back to Kumasi to fight the Denshira, Abome turned up its expansion to the next notch, rapidly subjugating the entire area of modern-day southern Benin. Similarly to the Ashanti, or Aquamu, the Daome had also fully embraced gunpowder weapons into their army, and adapted their tactics accordingly. The Daome even possessed their own unique all-female regiment of soldiers, the Minon, which outsiders would eventually come to call the Daume Amazons. These warrior women had their own super interesting background and history, and definitely deserve more detail than I can go into on a side note in this podcast. So if you want to learn more about the strange, fascinating, and enigmatic history of this regiment of martial women in a world still largely dominated by men, you can learn more about the Daume Amazons on this podcast's newest premium episode, If you'd like to listen to this episode, or if you'd just like to support the show in general, just go to our Patreon and pledge $2.99 per more. Me and my editor put an absolutely absurd amount of work into making this podcast happen, almost a full-time load of researching, writing, and recording. So if you'd like to help us out, or listen to our dozens of premium episodes, just head on over to patreon.com slash historyofafrica and pledge your support. And to those of you already supporting us, a heartfelt thank you. Anyways, by 1700, the growing Daume kingdom had pushed north and west, and by the late 1720s, they had expanded to the frontiers of Akumu and captured the city of Waida. Now, the Daume push west was briefly stalled due to the threat of another kingdom, a Yoruba state called Oyo, but I really wish I could talk about this in more detail, but suffice to say, the Daume fought against the Yoruba for 12 years and were eventually forced into a loose tributary status. But with the war concluded, the Daume began expanding westward again, and this time, nothing would stop them from crushing the Akwamu. By the late 1740s, things had not been going well for the Akwamu at all. They were still fighting several wars against their neighbors, and were completely stretched to their limits. So, when the Daume army once again marched into Akwamu lands, it was clear to everyone that the war was fundamentally over. The Daume army went on a rampage throughout the Akwamu countryside taking thousands of the inhabitants of villages as slaves and executing thousands more, burning villages and pillaging homes. In the ensuing peace negotiated between the two kingdoms, the once powerful Akumu Empire was reduced to a small tributary, and its once sprawling territories were relegated only to the capital city of Akwamufi. So, how did the Ashanti react to the fall of their eastern ally? Well, to be frank, they didn't really. Remember, in the late 1740s, the Ashanti were busy dealing with a lot of other things, namely Opokuware's failed attempts to pass his centralization reforms, and the brutal civil war that would begin with his death. Now, as we know, Kusi Obodom's faction would eventually emerge victorious in this conflict, and he would be installed as the next Ashante Hene shortly after. And so, we've caught back up with our main story. 
Now, remember all those territories that broke away from the Ashanti in the south last episode? Well, it's not like Kusi Obadom and his advisors were just happy to concede that the southern half of their empire had broken away from them. No, while the Ashanti army was still damaged after a devastating seven-year-long civil war, it was only a matter of time until the army would recover and they could reassert themselves over the south. Not to mention, as we saw during our last episode, Obodom didn't really seem to be much of a warlike person. Sure, he had taken power during a civil war, but it wasn't himself who had done most of the fighting, but rather his allied governors. Not to mention, Obodom had done a lot to reform the Ashanti law code to remove violent punishments like mutilations and executions, indicating that he was a man who had no preference towards violent solutions to problems. However, while Obodom didn't necessarily enjoy using violence, his role in the earlier civil war does indicate that he had no problem letting others engage in violence on his behalf. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. And, in the Ashanti government, the responsibility of waging war on the Ashantahene's behalf fell to the Juabenhene. So, remember back to our episode on Osetutu and the founding of the Kotoko Council. Well, each of those kings who had supported Osetutu, including the king of Juaben, were each given spots as advisors in the Ashanti central government. In general, each of them was given different specialized areas of expertise as well. And, for the Juabenhene, this position was essentially to act as minister of war. Remember how last episode, after a palace coup, Opokoware chose to flee to Juaben? Well, he didn't choose this particular city by accident. Its king commanded immense authority over the army, second only to, in theory, the Ashantahene himself. So, the current Juabenhene during the rule of Obodom was a man named Apia Odankwa, and he was not exactly what we'd call a loyal friend to Obodom. His uncle had been the Juabenhene to protect Opokuare, and throughout the civil war, he had openly sided against Obodom's decentralist faction. Despite this allegiance with the king's enemies, however, Odonkwa was allowed to stay a member of the Kotoko after Obodom's victory. After all, removing government ministers was one thing, but destooling the king of basically the second city of the Ashanti Empire was a much bigger ask. Now, in modern terminology, Odonkwa was what we'd call a warhawk. During meetings with Obodom, Odonkwa was apparently well-known for frequently advising the Ashantahani to pursue war with the rebellious kingdoms to the south. And, honestly, when you think about it, it's not hard to see why he thought this way. To the Ashanti's south, the rebellious states had reportedly become more aggressive in provoking the Ashanti. Ashanti merchants were frequently blocked from entering these kingdoms' territories, preventing them from accessing trade with the Europeans on the coast. To the east, the new Daome Empire had shown up, and while there weren't many signs of hostility yet, they had just, you know, gobbled up Ashanti's only major ally. So while it wasn't exactly clear that they were a foe, it was safe to assume that they weren't a friend either. To the west, while they've been absent from our show for a while, the Ashanti's old Dorma enemies lay <laughs> dormant, but they'd certainly pounce to attack the Ashanti if an opportunity presented itself. 
Not to mention, the Ashanti's old war with the Chuifo and Wasa in the southwest had created many refugees, some of whom had fled west to form their own new independent kingdoms. These new states, of course, didn't like the Ashanti, who had forced them to flee their old homes. And to the north, while the Ashanti retained some level of control over the Guang since Opokuwari's conquest of Gonjin near the end of his reign, it would only be a matter of time until they rebelled too. So, in a sense, the Ashanti are literally surrounded by enemies on all sides. Cornered cats are more likely to bite, and the Ashanti were definitely cornered. So, with this in mind, Odonkwa favored the strategy of acting aggressively now before things inevitably got worse for the Ashanti in the future. In particular, he continually pressured the king to attack Achim, perceived as the weakest member of the Fonti Southern Alliance. And he was not alone in this opinion. The regional governors who had once ruled over their territories in the south were desperate to regain control of their old stomping grounds. Ashanti merchants were sick of being turned away from potential profits in the south, not to mention some of the coastal states had gotten more brazen in showcasing their disdain for the Ashanti. In 1760, one of Obodom's uncles had been captured by a Wasa raiding party near the border of their kingdoms. He was kept as a hostage, enraging the Ashantihene. This provocative capture, alongside a wider trend of increasingly brazen raids into Ashanti territories, gradually pushed Obodom closer to Odonkwa and his warhawk allies. So, in 1763, six years after the end of the Ashanti Civil War, Obodom relented, decided that his army was ready, and declared war on the Achem. Despite not being fully recovered from their civil war, the Ashanti found great success in the fight against Achem. The Ashanti army, under the command of Odonkwa himself, swiftly overran much of the Achem territory. And they couldn't have chosen a better time to do it. You see, while the Ashanti were pushing towards war in the south, the relationship between Achim's allies, Wasa, Chuifo, and the Fonti, had grown increasingly strained. While these four states had aligned together out of the fear of Ashanti reconquest, besides this fear, they had basically no interests in common. The Wasa, especially, had proven themselves not to necessarily be the best allies. Despite sharing an alliance, the Wasahene continued to order raids into Fonti and Chuifo territories, resulting in numerous border clashes taking place between the supposed allies. In fact, by 1763, the Wasa had even permanently laid claims to a couple of Fonti towns captured in raids. To the Fonti, it seemed like the Wasa were potentially just as big a threat to their safety as the Ashanti. At one point, relations between the Fonti and Wasa were so bad that the king of Mankesim, the de facto leader of the Fonti, reached out to the Ashantihene of all people in the hopes of producing an anti-Wasa alliance, though this proposed alliance would never amount to anything. Due to these tense relations between members, the Southern Alliance did not enjoy the solidarity you might expect. When the Ashanti declared war on Achim, the Wasahene declared war in defense of his Achim ally, and even executed Obodom's captured uncle to show they were serious. The Fonti and Chuifo, though, were slow to react unwilling to commit themselves to a war on the same side as the Wasa. However, while the Ashanti army had overrun Achim territories, it curiously seemed they had no intention of staying. After taking some captives and looting some towns, the Ashanti army returned back to their own territory. This decision seems puzzling. Why abandon territories that you are on the verge of reconquering? However, the Ashanti decision to so hastily abandon their occupation of the Achim might make more sense when you consider what they found in Achim territory. There, they found Fon bureaucrats and military advisors, imported weapons that matched Fon designs, and other forms of material support from the east. To Odonkwa, it was clear what this meant. 
This whole time, while pretending to be ostensibly neutral, Dalme had been supporting the rebellious kingdoms in the south. Now, why exactly the Dalme had been supplying the Achem with weapons is unclear, but I think it can be best explained by simple power politics. I mean, it's not uncommon to see countries fund or support the enemies of their enemies in the modern era. Think of the Soviet Union aiding Vietnam in the Vietnam War, or the US aiding Afghan rebels during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. It seems conceivable that the Dalme were doing the same thing here, aiding Achem for the sole purpose of weakening Ashanti. However, Odonkwa was not willing to take this lying down. He hastily returned to Kumasi and convened a meeting of the Kotoko, showing them the evidence of Dalme's support for their enemies. With this major escalation in tensions between the Ashanti and Dalme, Kusi Obodom was still reluctant to order any sort of attack. Sure, the Dalme had been supporting the Achim, but is that really something worth escalating into a war over? However, Odonkwa and the other members of the Kotoko had grown tired of Obodom's passive foreign policy. Remember, Obodom was already quite unpopular among the elites of Kumasi, due to his chumminess with the provincial Avanhene. So, his reluctance to pursue war was read quite negatively by the members of the Kotoko. Already unhappy with his rule, and further enraged by his perceived passivity, Odankwa and the Kotoko made an ultimatum. Obodom would declare war on the Daume, or they would call for his removal as king. Sensing that the Kotoko was serious, and seeing no other way to meet their demands, Obodom reluctantly agreed, and watched as his advisors formulated a plan on how to deal with Daume. Their strategy was straightforward, and depending on how you view it, either incredibly bold or incredibly reckless. Rather than fight cautiously along the border, or attempt to draw their enemy into an ambush, Odonkwa's plan was to march an army straight into the heart of Dahomey territory and seize their capital. The Daume, unable to mobilize an army in time, would be forced to stand back and watch as their capital was ransacked before the Ashanti army would return unmolested back to Kumasi. Now, this might seem like a weird plan, until you remember the actual goal of this campaign. Remember, Odonkwa's goal was not to conquer territory with this war, nor was it to crush the Daume army. Rather, it was to show the Ashanti's strength and send a message to the Daume. Essentially, his intended message was that if you mess with the Ashanti, consequences can and will come. When the plan succeeded, the message would be clear as day, and the Daume would learn their lesson about meddling in Ashanti affairs and cease any plans of doing so in the future. With this plan in mind, Odonkwa departed Kumasi with an army of about 20,000 men and crossed east over the Volta River. As Odonkwa's army marched through Daume territory, everything at first seemed to go according to plan. The Daume had to be aware of this army marching through their lands, but nobody had come to meet them in battle. Seemingly in line with Odonkwa's plan, the Daume had to have either been unwilling or incapable of mounting a resistance. Within no time, Odonkwa's army was drawing close to the Daume capital. They stopped at the small town of Atakbame, just a few days' march to the northeast of Abome, where they set up camp to ensure that they would be ready to march tomorrow on the capital. However, the next day, Odonkwa and his army woke up to find themselves face to face with an enemy army, one much larger than he could have expected. Not only had the Daume army itself come to confront them, but so too had a regiment of Achim allies. However, most importantly, several regiments of oil soldiers stood firmly next to the Daome. You see, while plotting their march on the Daome capital, the Kotoko had been right that the Daome couldn't muster an army big enough to confront Odonkwa's forces. But the oil, 
who were not happy about the Ashanti sending an army to invade their Dalme tributary, certainly could. Soon the battle commenced, with both sides fighting ferociously. Now, despite their inferior numbers, the Ashanti still stood a chance in the ensuing battle. The army might have been under-equipped, as they weren't expecting to see any intense fighting on this expedition, but even then, Ashanti forces were widely equipped with firearms, which gave them an immense advantage over their foes. While they did possess some firearms, the Daume, and especially the Oil, still had many of their troops fight with traditional swords and bows and use corresponding tactics. This technological advantage helped the Ashanti hold their own against the opposing onslaught, but eventually it was the Minon, the elite corps of female soldiers who exploited a breakthrough in the Ashanti forward guard to force the Ashanti into a bloody retreat. The 20,000 Ashanti men fled in a panic all the way back to Kumasi, losing a substantial portion of their numbers in the process. Even Odunkwa himself was killed in the panicked exodus. As the remains of the expedition trickled back into Kumasi, the entire Ashanti kingdom was overcome with a wave of humiliation. Not only had their army been embarrassed and routed by a technologically inferior enemy, Odunkwa, a popular political and military leader in his own right, had died in the retreat. It was shameful, and someone was going to have to pay. And even though he had opposed the expedition, the Kotoko decided to pin the blame for the invasion's failure on Kusi Obodom. They called for the Ashantahane to be removed from power, and replaced with someone new. In a revolutionary decision, for the first time in Ashanti history, the residents of Kumasi and the elites of the Kotoko Council alike gathered in a public forum, and deliberated on what to do with their king. While his reforms to the law code had been popular, Obodom's reign had been overwhelmingly characterized in his early years by chaos and instability, and in his later years by economic stagnation and military humiliation. The king's health was also a concern. Already quite elderly, half-blind, and with his vision supposedly getting worse by the day, many thought that Obodom was simply becoming too old and sickly to run an empire. The assembly overwhelmingly chose to destool the king. Kusi Obodom, with little support and goodwill left from anyone, was forced to give up his royal robes, vacate the palace in Kumasi, and surrender his title of Ashantahane. The impeachment of a king is, needless to say, incredibly unusual, not just among the Ashanti, but really anywhere in history. And the fact that it was done peacefully is even more peculiar. But this is where the strangeness only begins. Due to the unusual circumstances in which he was removed, Kusi Obodom had not ensured the delegation of a new heir. So, now that the king had been destooled, there was nobody who was clearly set to be his successor. No, the next Ashantahene couldn't simply be selected. He would have to be instooled by a mass election. Join us next week as the Ashanti decide to elect their king for the first time. And, oh boy, the guy that they choose will certainly leave an impact. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Kevin Johnson, Morgan Blackmore, Sean Burke, Sarah Mpenza, and Tobias Tungland, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really means a lot.